This is Speaking Theology with Chris Green. I'd hoped to have this episode to you a couple of days ago, three or four days ago, in fact. But as many of you know, my my father ended up in the emergency room. It seemed to be a life-threatening situation. Thankfully, he's home now and is stable. Thanks for pr- those of you who did know for praying with us. He's doing relatively well. All things considered, he's doing quite well. He's in good spirits. I'm glad he's with us. And he'll see the, the spine specialist in a week or two or three as soon as they can get him an appointment. And hopefully that will tell the tale on what's happening with him. I'll try to get this episode and, and the last episode in the series out this week so that you have them both before before Christmas. Although I, I'm assuming at least some of you will be hearing it after Christmas, which is whatever works for you works for me. Well, I first want to cover, uh, give a quick review of some of what I've covered up to this point. I'm not, not going to go point by point by any means, but I do want to kind of catch everyone up to the themes that, that I've emphasized in the, these first two episodes. In the first episode, I, I really wanted to emphasize the the unconditional nature of God's life with us. That God's love is unconditional in the sense that God's love is conditioned by nothing but God. That God's being is conditioned by nothing but God. Heaven and eternity are not boundary conditions for God as time and space and matter are for us. God is not even constrained by his own nature. In fact, I didn't mention this in the episode, but Eugenos Eugenia will say that God does not even know his own nature because it is his life is so free and so super excessively supra infinite above and beyond what we can ask or think that it's not a thing to be known even by God. God is not constrained by his nature. He's, he's not a being that subsists by the permanence of his attributes. Jensen will underscore that point in the passage we're reading today. He simply is his attributes, personally, tri-personally. He is his attributes. His being and his doing are one. What God is and how God is and who God is, that's all one reality. That's that's what we mean when we say that God is simple. And when we say that God is impassable, what we mean is that God is conditioned by nothing but God. Right? That, that nothing makes God to be a different God. Nothing changes God or makes it so that God improves or in some ways loses touch with improves on being God or gets better at being God or in some way loses touch with himself and is acting unlike himself, right? God is, is not inside of a condition and God is not vulnerable to shifting realities around him. He's not conditioned by shifts in our responses and in created reality. He's a place to himself. He's a time to himself. And the incarnation, therefore, does not change God, but reveals God in such a way that all things are changed for good. That was the theme that I wanted to emphasize in the first conversation. In the second conversation, I wanted to emphasize that God is at one with himself, that God is never conflicted, never never opposed to or at odds with himself. He's never caught between opposing purposes or motivations. So the divine attributes, and this this is directly in contradiction to what is said in the catechism that I read to you, the divine attributes are not brought into disharmony by God's relation to us, by, by our relation to God. Strictly speaking, God does not have a relation to us. God just is, and we are given a relation to God. But the divine attributes are not brought into disharmony by that relation that God creates for us. God's mercy is not, it's never at cross purposes with God's justice. God's holiness cannot be contaminated. And his dignity, remember that's one of the attributes that's named in the catechism, his dignity cannot be lost. And and so it doesn't need to be regained. It it can only be known and shared. God's dignity all that God is, his knowledge, his power, his justice, his mercy, these are not attributes, his infinity, his eternity, so on and so on. They're, they're simply who he is. They're ways of naming who he is and how he lives with us, being who he is. And, and that means that this, this cannot be, these things cannot be lost or contaminated or altered. 
He can't get better. Can't be become more merciful or less and so on. And so when we're thinking about the incarnation, then we have to recognize that the incarnation does not force God into disharmony. It doesn't bring contradictions into God's life, right? So that the son's weakness is somehow in tension with the spirit's power, say, or the son's desire to be merciful is somehow in tension with the father's need to do justice like that. We often assume that those tensions exist in God. We often talk as that catechism does as if God has to reconcile himself to himself. He has to overcome contradictions that are brought into his life by his love for us. But that is not what the scriptures say. And that's not what the gospel makes claim, right? In Christ, God is not reconciling God to God. God is reconciling himself, us to himself and us to ourselves, not himself to himself, right? So that was the theme of the second conversation. The third theme that I want to name, and this came up in that second conversation too, is that I do have a deep and kind of central disagreement with Jensen. And it has to do with what he says about sin, evil, and death as intermediate goods. And I'll just very quickly underscore that. I do not think there are any necessary evils, certainly not in the sense that God decides for them. And I do not think that those evils are made lesser goods or intermediate goods by the greater good, quote unquote, that God makes from them. So Joseph's enslavement in Egypt is not made an intermediate good by the fact that he becomes Israel's deliverer. It is an evil and it remains an evil. There are goods that spring up in spite of and in opposition to that evil. The evil does not negate the possibility. It becomes the sight. The evil that is happening to him does not overthrow his personhood. And therefore he, the person, Joseph, remains the sight of good God is doing amidst all those evils. But we, we don't want to confuse one for the other. And I think, Jens, in the interest of being direct, in, in the interest of a kind of logical coherence or consistency, is is oversimplifying. He is confusing one with the other. And I, I want to reject that outright. I don't think we can cooperate with God the way we're called to cooperate with God if we deep down believe that there are necessary evils that can be made lesser goods by a greater good, right? That's imagined or accomplished in, in ways that are false to the way of Jesus. So <coughs> we, we really need, I think to reject Jensen's approach to that. Uh, one, one more quick note before we turn to the readings for today I don't think Jensen's metaphysics are as revisionary as he sometimes suggests that they are. You'll, you'll hear that again in the passage that we're reading now. He's, he is offering something different than what is common, and he's very often read as saying something far more radical than he in fact is saying. So I, I think he's, the, especially early on, He's like Bart in that he's emphasizing the the newness of what he's saying, the ways in which it's a, a kind of overturning of agreed upon ways of speaking in the tradition. But I I don't think that's quite right or fair. I think that it's much closer to the truth to say that he's drawing up themes that are suppressed in the tradition sometimes, but not altogether absent, altogether absent. And he's giving them kind of fresh articulation. He's, he's putting new words on these old ideas, but I do think Jens is a traditional theologian at the end of the day, even though his approach is, is at times seemingly untraditional. That's not in fact, what what he's doing, not not in fact how he's getting it done. All right. So with that said, I want to turn to two passages, one that we'll read somewhat at length, and then one that I will just brush up against. One is this the section on being on the being of God in volume one of the Christian Dogmatics, which were published in nineteen eighty four. Jen's 
was an editor for that series and a contributor, but not the only one writing um, in in that collection of Christian dogmatics. And then an essay of his on impassibility, which was published in 2009. So first, let's look at what he says about the being of God in Christian dogmatics. And I, I want to stress, as we begin, that I'm not interested in working through whether or not he's right in his historic his critique of the history of the tradition he's going to talk as you'll hear a lot about substance metaphysics and he he'll be sharply critical of what the dominant voices in the tradition have said about god's being and in fact he'll he'll just outright say the gospel won't allow us to believe that I'm not going to work through whether or not he's his his account of that history is accurate. All all I want to do is draw attention to the ways in which his approach, what he's offering us, emphasizes something that I think needs to be emphasized, which is the the living God and the liveliness of God's life with us, and how it is that we can share that liveliness and. I, w- I want to draw attention to the ways in which that changes like deeply what we understand waiting on God to mean. If if Advent is a season of waiting and waiting on God, what happens when we understand this God, the one we're waiting on, as a God who's, who's lively and whose life is kind of endlessly surprising and dynamic, never static, never boring, but gloriously, wondrously, exciting and and intoxicatingly alive that God created life and God loves life. This is, I think what we see in the gospels with Jesus, that Jesus loves life and, and lives life to the full and wants us to love life and to live lives that we love living. And so I'll, I'll, as I'm working through what Jen said, but I don't want us to get caught in the technicalities I'll have to say some about it just just to make sure you're hearing what he is saying. But let's let's kind of push past the phrasing, which which is peculiar and at times probably can be disorienting, especially for those who who haven't read a lot of Jens already and haven't read other theologians, his his peers and predecessors, so that are shaping the way that he's talking. But honestly, I don't. It doesn't matter. I think whether you've read any of him or not, you've read theology in depth or not, there is a lot that he's saying here that I think will resonate if if you hear what he's trying to say, hear, hear the notes he's trying to play. So this, again, is Christian Dogmatics, Volume 1, The Being of God. He's asking, he's already answered the who question. Who is God? God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And this is the God we know personally. Now he's come to what kind of being does God have? In fact, his exact phrasing is what sort of being must God have since he is triune? That's what he's trying to answer in this section. And what he says is that God is event, God is person, God is spirit, and God is discourse. God is event, person, spirit, and discourse. Again, odd language, but listen to what this language affords. Listen to what it makes possible for us in terms of how we think and feel about God's being. The entire exposition of God's triunity demands our first proposition. God is an event. The kind of reality God has is like that of a kiss or an automobile accident. Elsewhere, he'll say train wreck. God is a happening. In the dominating tradition, now notice, not the tradition as a whole, Jens is aware that it's not as if everything said before what he's saying now was somehow mistaken. But he is saying that what has been most common in the tradition has been misguided because it's emphasized the notion of substance. And he says whether in more accordance, whether more according to Plato or more according to Aristotle. This substance metaphysics is what Jensen wants to critique. And this substance, this this metaphysics of substance, holds that a substance is something maintaining itself in being by possessing some definite complex of attributes. 
right? So this, what makes something what it is, is that it has a, a set of attributes that do or do not change. And if they do not change, that makes it more divine. And if they do change, that makes it less divine, right? So if if you have a, a something with a set of attributes and one of those attributes is unchangingness and that unchangingness applies to at least other attributes, then you, you kind of have a move on the scale toward the godlike and away from the creature-like. And this, Jens argues, is deeply mistaken. We, if you think in terms of this kinds of substance metaphysics, then to be substantial, to be something, is to endure. To, to endure. And to endure as this set of things and not some other set of things. But he insists that this this cannot be so. We cannot think of God as the perfect substance, as the true substance, as if what makes God God is the unchangingness of a set of attributes, simplicity, infinity, omnipotence, omniscience, holiness. Like we can't list out, say, and, and this often happens in systematic theologies, you can't, you can't just simply list out attributes of God, communicable and incommunicable, and and then insist that what makes God God is that these things are perfect and these things are stable. They're unchanging. That doesn't do justice, Jens wants to say, to the liveliness of God's life or to the kind of being God is and shares with us. Christians, he says, cannot approve this metaphysics. And this should have been apparent for whoever would save his life will lose it. In other words, that desire to cling to stability, to unchangingness, is a way of losing what your life is. Now, of course, you might make the case that when Jesus says this, whoever would save his life will lose it. He's not talking about metaphysics at all. He's talking about issues of salvation, right? But, of course, Jens would accept no such distinction, and we shouldn't either. Or you might say that it's true for us that we must not try to save our lives. We must not try to hold on to our attributes because we're unlike God. But God can, in fact, hold on to his own attributes. God can be stable in that way and unchanging. Jens wants to insist that, no, again, all that is is what it is because God is who he is. And therefore, if we must lose our lives to be saved— and if we lose our lives in attempting to saving it, in attempts to save it on our own terms, then that must be because of the way this God lives his life, who who he is with us and for us. And he he does admit that this, this is seen in the work of Trinitarian theologians and the tradition. He doesn't name Augustine, but he clearly has Augustine and Hillary and Aquinas in mind, among others. But he says that they often relapse from that insight. So they recognize that God's life is dynamic dynamic, and that God is not self-possessing, that God does not try to hold on to what he is, that God's life is lively and open and free. And and yet they, they're not always true to this insight. Now, he, he doesn't mention it here, but clearly Jens is, is motivated by, by a reading of Philippians 2, that Christ does not cling to his equality with God. And precisely in that not clinging, that, that being unpossessing, his, his willingness to be open-handed with his own relation to the Father, his own uncreated relation to the Father, then we, we see who and what God actually is. Right? That, it turns out God is not possessive of his own life. God is is not defensive about his being. He's not protecting himself from change. Forget for now whether or not that's in fact what the tradition has predominantly said. Forget whether or not that's a fair reading of Augustine and Hillary and Aquinas, etc. Just attend to what he is affirming, the, the, this emphasis on God's liveliness. In other words, it's not as if God is a set of attributes and in certain ways at certain times, God then springs into action, right? That 
we must not think of the divine nature as somehow prior to and other than the persons of the Trinity being who they are without getting caught in those kind of finer points though. I want you to hear God is what happens with Jesus. So God happens to Jesus. God happens as Jesus. God happens with Jesus. And this he says is why all manner of things will indeed be well, right? And all, all will be well because God's life is lively enough, as he'll put it in the systematics, God's life is roomy enough to make room for us because it's roomy in that lively way. It's roomy like a story is roomy or roomy like a song is roomy. It, like, like a piece of music, it, it has the, the roominess of this living dynamic, love. And therefore we can be included in it. So he says, God is not an event in time, nor even an event extended through all time. God is rather the event by which the world has a future to be a world of time. In other words, God being God brings our reality into being such as it is. And God's liveliness gives life to us and conditions the lives we live. God is not conditioned by anything but God, we are all conditioned by God and God's unconditional love. So when he talks about God, he, he draws on a, a certain reading of Gregory of Nyssa's account of the Osea, the deity of God, and emphasizes that the infinity that we see in the tradition must be understood personally. And that leads him to the second affirmation, God is event, God is person. And he he spells out this difference between the ways in which we're using the word person. When we talk about God's imminent life, the father, the son, and the spirit are three persons in one nature. And the way we use person, when we talk about one another, when we talk anthropologically and ecclesially, like you and I are persons. When we use that language, we mean something different. Than when we when we speak of the Father, Son, and Spirit as persons, he does. We we must not think the Father, Son, and Spirit are individual centers of consciousness. It's not as if the Father has a mind of his own that's something other than the Son and the Spirit. It, it's not as if the Father has a psychology or a a, a kind of interior life, if we can put it like that, that differs from the Son's and the Spirit's. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about God as three persons in one, with one nature or in one nature, one nature, three persons. What we want to say, Jen says, is that God is personal in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is a person in that everyday sense, the dumb sense of a person, right? A, a bounded particular individual. That's the person in which we see the God who is personal, but not in ways that leads us to tritheism. And so he says, coming back to Gregory, it all depends on what sort of infinity, what sort of freedom from limitation we have in mind when we attribute infinity to God. If we think of simple absence of definition, an infinite being cannot indeed be self-conscious. But if we think of God's infinity as Trinitarianism should teach us to think of it, for example, Gregory Nyssa, as freedom to transcend each new definition while never lacking one, or as the Hebrew scriptures should teach us to think of it as unconquerable faithfulness, unconquerable faithfulness. Then that, then that the bounded individual Jesus is God's object self does not hinder God's infinity. It constitutes it. Again, this is breathtaking paragraph, a mind bending one too, but he's what he's insisting on is that if we follow the scriptures closely and we read the fathers, at least some of them, in this case, Gregory of Nyssa, well, then when we're talking about God's infinity, we, we mean it personally and we recognize it not as a kind of the unchangingness of his attributes plus the unlimitedness of those attributes. God is not just impassable and infinite, but he's personally 
unconquerably faithful. Nothing can keep God from being God. Nothing can keep God from being God for us. So when we say that God's love is unconditional, we're both saying that it's infinite. Nothing, no no limit can be put to God's love for us. And we're saying that it's impassable. Nothing can alter God's love for us. But we have to keep the emphasis, Jensen wants to say, on the fact that that is how God is with us personally. Again, not as a kind of confederation of three gods, but personally in the sense that God has purpose and will, that the triune God, whose life comes to bear in our lives, in the person of this man, Jesus, who's Mary's son, like Jesus of Nazareth, who was killed outside Jerusalem and has been raised from the dead. This God is, is not simply unchanging, unchangingly perfect. This God is unconquerably faithful. And, and it's that, that kind of irresistible faithfulness of God that Jens wants to emphasize. So he goes on. The person that God is, is the human person, Jesus, the son. The triune event that God is, is by its trinity, a person, this one. We need not, therefore, think of the other identities of the Father or the Spirit as, with respect to their distinction from one another, individual personal beings in the modern sense. We don't want to, again, think of three gods, three centers of consciousness in some kind of confederation in their love for us. There probably is room. Certainly, I'm open to conversations about what has broadly been called social Trinitarianism. But Jens is rejecting that out, outright. And, and I would agree with him that most accounts of social Trinitarianism, they veer into tritheism in ways that undo what, in fact, the scriptures say about the life of God. And they, and they draw God down to the level of what we can imagine. That's a conversation for another day. This is the point in this particular section Jens cares most deeply about. In that Jesus cries, Father, if it be possible. That's the Gethsemane prayer, obviously. And in that he will give up his rule at the last. And in that he is not disappointed in these relations. So that give up his rule at the last, I think, is a reference to 1 Corinthians 15, that once Christ has ruled and reigned until all enemies are put under his feet, once he's done that, he will then turn over the kingdom to God the Father, which sounds like a kind of subordinationism, right? That the the Son is somehow making himself less than the Father. And certainly in the garden, he is submitting his will to the Father. So Jen's drawing our attention to those two passages. And of course, he's doing that in conversation with Gregory of Nyssa once again. In that he is not disappointed in these relations, there is the Father. Right? We could spend all four of these episodes just on this one sentence, honestly. That Jesus, when he prays to the Father, and when he gives up his rule to the Father, when he says, not my will, but your will be done, when he turns over the kingdom to God the Father, and is not disappointed in them, that is how the Father is the Father. The Son, in that sense, is sunning the Father into fatherhood. And he's doing so precisely in what the man Jesus does in these moments of submission. In that Jesus gives his spirit at the cross, breathing his last. And in that he will gather all to himself in that spirit. And in that his this movement is final, there is the spirit. In other words, Jesus breathing his last is breathing into all things this, the breath of life. As we read God breathing breath of life into Adam in the beginning. That, that, the, that's what's happening at the cross, but to all things. This does not mean, however, that the Father and the Spirit are created by Jesus. And, and it's right here that Jens often gets misread, that he's so wanting to emphasize that God simply is the one who's happening to and with and as Jesus and the one to whom Jesus prays and in the Spirit in which Jesus is able to pray that he's in some way making the Father and the Spirit the creations, the creation of Jesus. And he says outright, no, that's not what that means. The relations necessarily posit some individual terms, but this does not mean they are secondary. So again, we must not think of the nature coming before the persons, the persons as manifestations of the divine nature, 
And we must not think of one of the persons as creating the others, right? So the, the father is, as Jens will say in his systematics, and this, this seems to be a development in his thought. In the systematics, he will say the father is the, the, the source of the son and the spirit, but not in a way that creates them, not in a way that makes them derivative, right? The father does father the son and the spirit. He breathes the spirit and begets the son. And yet it's only because the spirit is spiriting the father and the son that the father can father the son and the spirit. And it's only because the son is sunning the father and the spirit that the father can breathe the spirit and the spirit can free the father to, to work his own work. So there, there is a way in which there is, there's a uniqueness the father is the father and not the son and the spirit, but not a separate center of consciousness, not some person doing something other than what the son and the spirit are doing. When we know God personally, we know him in Jesus. Now what, what God gives us, what God give or what Jensen gives us, I should say, in talking about God in this way, is that we can attend to Jesus directly, personally, and know that only in knowing Him do we know God. We can't, we cannot look at Jesus and say, "Well, yes, there's Jesus, but there's also the Father and also the Spirit, and they have their own purposes." We we can't say, "Well, of course, Jesus was merciful and forgiving and patient and kind, but there's also the Father." And he has his own mind. He has his own purposes. We, we cannot think of Jesus' weakness and then say, but oh, oh, of course, the Spirit is powerful, and we have a relation to the Spirit as well. So what, what Jen's theology gives us, and in, in this, I think, again, he's deeply traditional, not only in the Cap, with the Cappadocians, Gregory of Nyssa that he names explicitly, but with, with many, many, many in the tradition, if not the majority of the tradition, our attention has to be on Jesus as the fullness of God. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. And who God is is Father, Son, and Spirit. The fathering of the Father, the spiriting of the Spirit, the sonning of the Son. All of that is taking place in and to and because of Jesus. Not in a way, again, that makes the Father and the Spirit derivative from Jesus, but also not in a way in which Jesus is is simply one among three or somehow a, a lesser manifestation, a weakened manifestation of who the Son is in himself or who the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in themselves. Jesus is God without qualification. Jesus is God full stop. In Jesus, we see the fullness of God. And when we say in Jesus, we mean, of course, the living one who is living and ruling from the heart of creation. But we know him because we know him in the gospels and in the church's ministries of word and sacrament, in which he personally presents himself, makes himself known. That brings us to what he says about prayer. And it's, it's his account of prayer that first drew me to Jen's. And I think that most opens up his work for people who are who are not professional theologians and have no interest in professional theology. They're not those who are not academics, but are drawn to a life with the Lord and to a life of cooperating with God and what God's doing in the world. So this is from the very end of that passage on God as person, that God answers prayer, that God makes threats and quote unquote repents of them. When the evil is past, that God makes promises and fulfills them by new and unexpected promises. That is not anthropomorphic or symbolic. When we talk about God answering prayer, responding personally, when we, we talk about God making promises and bringing them to fulfillment, that's not anthropomorphism. It's the strictest descriptive propositional truth. God is personal in a way we are not yet. We are called to be persons, but we're growing up into the fullness of personhood. It's when we are said to initiate something new, to be surprising and faithful at once, that language is stretched a bit. And that that phrase, to be surprising and faithful at once, to be capable of surprise, but never capable of failing, never capable of, of being unfaithful, like that dynamic is what marks a person. And God is personal in an infinite sense. 
And that's realized in the person, the bounded particular individual, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus who has the DNA of Mary, Jesus whose body is beaten and bruised and finally has its life taken from it. Like that particular person, Jesus, is the one in whom the personhood of God in all of its fullness, in all of its surprising faithful fullness, comes to us. And that's what we're being drawn into. So we are all personal. We are being made more and more and more personal, personal as God is personal, because we are being made one with Jesus. And that brings us to the third affirmation. God is event. God is person. God is spirit. And he, he, he works through some of the philosophy of spirit. He talks about Slymacher and Kant. He talks about Socrates. He talks about Schopenhauer. He talks about a kind of Augustinian, Hegelian, Trinitarianism, all of that. You know, those of you who are interested in the, those kinds of details, I mean, this is the, the section for you. What I'm interested in for this conversation is what he's affirming, what Jensen wants to insist upon so, so that it shapes our prayers and sh- shapes our faith and our apprehension of the world and our, our, the ways in which we imagine and are, are pulled beyond even what we can imagine. And he says that God is, is not a God who, again, is static. He's not a great I, E-Y-E. He's not an observer. He's not a moral enforcer. God is, again, too dynamic for that. Let me read a sentence. The God whose primary reality is unmovedly to know us in all things as what we are, unmovedly being a reference to the unmoved mover, is simply not the one of whom the Bible speaks. The God of the Bible is a storm, blowing us like leaves from what we are to what we will be and only knowing us in this motion. The great mind's eye is doubtless a noble conception and may even subsist, but he is much too harmless to be God by Ezekiel's lights. Yet neither is the Bible's God a sheerly arbitrary force. We must somehow learn to think God as faithful will. And he says that's exactly what's given to us in Luther's On the Bondage of the Will, which he says is intemperate, prolix, and sometimes misguided. But it, more than any other book other than the Bible, it, a book in the Bible, it keeps our attention on the God who's, but God as the one who works life, death, and all in all who works life, death, and all in all. And this working of life, death, and all in all, right? This is both, I think, right and where Luther and Jensen go wrong. God's working of life and God's working of death are not two separate things. It, I would contend. It's not that God uses life for some things and death for others. There is in what we call the work of life, something that works a kind of death that is in fact not like the death that we know because of sin and fallenness, that God brings things to an end. God can cut away that which should not be from that which should be. There there are ways in which God can be forceful, but never violent. There are ways in which God does bring things to an end, that God's judgment does Halt, bring bring things to closure. Again, God can be forceful, but God is not using his own, uh, he's not using death or what he himself has called evil to bring about good. Now, again, come back to what Jens wants to insist upon, that it's, we must not think of God as mind or will, we must think of God as spirit. And what that means is that God's reality is a, is complex and alive. Complex and alive. That is, and now I'm, I'm quoting directly, God is freedom. God is neither mind using will nor will using mind. God is creativity that is both. God is neither mind using will nor will using mind. God is creativity that is both. God is transforming and faithful liveliness. Transforming and faithful liveliness. God is spirit. 
So that that is the God of the gospel. And I, we're all of my disagreements with Jens on, on in his doctrine of providence or his doctrine of evil, his understanding of the ways in which God providentially uses evil, and all of my disagreements with the way he recounts the history of Christian doctrine, his his notions about substance metaphysics, like all of that to me is secondary. What's primary is that he's right to insist upon the liveliness of God, this life that is surprising and faithful at once, that's unconquerably faithful, and a life that is transforming in its faithfulness and in its liveliness. It can transform us by that faithfulness and by that liveliness into being one with God, into being faithful and lively just as God is God. And what I love about that, one of the things I love about it, is that it it strips away from us cliches that have, have, I think, diseased, kind of ossified our speech so that when we talk about God's attributes and we talk about salvation as being made to share in the life of God or made to be, to, to be sanctified, to even, even to be deified, even those of us who are daring enough to talk about theosis, we still, because, because we're working with kind of cliched and hardened concepts about divine attributes and we've not done enough work on the conceptual framework i'll say more about that in a moment that phrase in a moment because we've not done enough work on the conceptual framework for thinking what it is for god to be god what we mean when we talk about the being of god we we end up either talking nonsense or saying something that doesn't move us even though at some level we recognize it must be true it's not moving Jensen, precisely because he's breaking with those patterns of speech, is allowing us to feel something of the the shock, the, the newness, the surprise of what it means to have been called into being by a God whose life is lively, whose, whose life is never boring, that God is not distant and God is not static, but God is present, more present than we can imagine, and dynamic in, in ways that are beyond what we could imagine. And that, Jin says, draws together in this notion of God as discourse. God as event, person, spirit, and discourse. And th- this, he believes, is how the gospel comes to us. The word comes to us in the preaching, in the prayer, in the Eucharist, the visible and audible word, the, the word that we eat and the word that we hear and digest in our spirits and we're drawn up into the conversation God is. So a couple of paragraphs here from this section, not only does the triune God speak to initiate relation to us, but the initiated relation eternally remains speech remains communication. This God's eternity is his unconquerable futurity. Again, remember he's unconquerably faithful because he's, already accomplished a future in himself already is the future that he's accomplished in himself for us. So he is his own future in his, in himself as his own future. He has made a future for us and that future will always be there. Nothing can keep that future from being there for us. No matter what our present is, no matter what our past is, this God is fellowship with us. And it is in the word that we are there for one another. The Christian vision of the end is not of a great silence, but of a great liturgy. Not of a great silence, but of a great liturgy. Of preaching and our eternal response of praise and acclamation. Revelation 4 and 5. And that, that for Jens, is what we're talking about. We talk about the being of God. And he says, not only does God speak about us, God's speech is not simply about us, and it's certainly not speech against us or over against us. We're brought up into conversation with this God. We're made to speak with this God and for this God. The triune reality, and by the triune reality of whatever God is, the word that God is, is an exchange, not a lecture. An exchange, not a lecture. That, that's what's being accomplished in God. And that, that brings us to the other essay from 2009, which I think brings a lot of this even into sharper focus. In one of the conversations I had with Jens there at his house in Princeton, 
with him and Blanche. And I had not read yet this essay. He had written it, but at the time it was fairly new and I hadn't seen it yet. In fact, it, I, this may have been 2009 when I was talking to him, maybe 2010. It, it was a relatively new piece and I, I hadn't read it yet. And he, he brought it up to me in conversation because the questions I was asking about the other passages I read, he said, yeah, you're right to ask those questions. I think I've addressed them in this piece. And sure enough, I think he did. So that's, that's what we're going to look at now. This was published in a book on divine impassibility and the mystery of human suffering that was edited by James Keating and Thomas Joseph White, published by Erdman's 2009. And, Jensen's essay is entitled Ipse Pater Non Est Impassibilis, which is a, a phrase from Origen's homilies on Ezekiel. Even the Father is not impassible. Even the Father is not impassible. So let's, just a couple of sections from this essay that I want to attend to, mostly concerned with prayer. At the very beginning, the first section, he he takes to task Thomas Wynandy, Father Wynandy, because of Wynandy's critique of him. Wynandy has essentially said in, in in an essay that's also included in this book and at that symposium where these papers were first given that Jensen's view is, according to Wynandy, Jensen is saying, and here I'll, I'll quote just a bit of it, God actualizes himself through his actions within history. And to that, Jensen responds, I have not said any such pseudo-Hegelian thing, nor do Wynandy's citations for my work entail the proposition. In other words, no, that's not what I'm saying. And the only reason you think that's what I'm saying is you've held, in this case, Wynandy or whomever the critic is, you've held to the concept, conceptual framework in which the construal and time of time and eternity is the one I want to overcome. The conceptual framework in which the conditions of time and eternity, conditions for us and for, uh, for God, are are not challenged in the way that the Jens wants to challenge them. And so it's in that context that he comes to trying to address what he believes is a question that will persist. What sort of being does this son of God have? By what title is he God? What indeed do Christians mean by being or by God? We have been working on answers ever since, right? So these these are the questions that come up when the gospel is proclaimed in the ancient world. And he says, we've been working on answers ever since. The temptation that regularly besets us is fundamentalist longing to think that this conversation has come to a satisfactory rest at some point in the past, whether with the fathers or Thomas or Luther or Bart or whomever, so that we are dispensed from its labors. And I think he's suggesting that Wynandy has settled and is disturbed by what Jensen is saying because he doesn't think any such exploration, any such new language is necessary. And therefore he dismisses what Jensen is saying, not only because he's not, he's not recognizing the conceptual framework Jensen is working with, but also because he doesn't think the kind of creativity Jensen is endeavoring to bring to the conversation is needed. But he says, Jensen makes it clear. He thinks that's a temptation. That's, that's an attack on the tradition. I love this section. That temptation is an attack on the tradition because the tradition is fundamentally the continuing enterprise itself, encompassing but never identical with its achievements to date. So what makes the tradition the tradition is that it's lively. It's ongoing. And it's it's something I heard David Burrell say once, who, who also passed away this year, like Blanche did. Burrell said that this this is the difference between a tradition and an ideology. A, a tradition is a lively, ongoing argument in which there there is a, an ongoing, constant, free and lively back and forth about what makes the tradition the tradition, right? What makes the community the community? What makes the faith the faith? But what you have in an ideology is a refusal to engage in that kind of conversation. The the only exchange is one of force, uh, of violence. An ideology can't bear conversation. And for Jens, the theology is conversational, because God is conversation. All right, so now to what he says in this essay about impassibility. 
and then a few remarks about what that tells us about Advent. If indeed the Christology is true, whose slogan is that one of the Trinity suffered in the flesh, and that's from Cyril, and and Jens has at this point made it clear that he is in that kind of Cyrillian, neo-Chalcedonian line of thought. One of the Trinity suffered in the flesh. Then the God here referred to by the Trinity is not impassable in any use of the adjective that would occur to a native user of Greek, Latin, or English. Jesus is the one who suffers the passion. Therefore, and Jesus is God. So, of course, it cannot be true. Impassibility in in the common sense sense cannot be true, Jen says. Right, at least not to any user who's mastered the relation of subject and predicate. Right? So this, this, when we say that God is impassable, we must not then hold to that in ways that make the incarnation seem like a violation of what God's nature actually is, and and or in a way that makes Jesus seem less than God or other than God. One of the Trinity suffered in the flesh. Therefore, in some real sense, God must be passable. And so he then referenced Cyril again, his famous apothos pathoi, right, that God suffers without suffering, is on the right track. And the way that Jensen would put it himself is God does not suffer the fact that he suffers, right? God does not suffer the fact that he suffers. And, and yet, the subject is the same. Jesus, the suffering one, suffers. He doesn't suffer in the ways that we do, in the sense that he's powerless in the face of that suffering, his faithfulness is unconquerable. He is already his own future, and yet he does, in fact, suffer. He suffers it unsufferingly. He does not suffer the fact that he suffers. So he says we we have to reject any kind of flat account of impassibility. It is true. It is true he says that in the tradition, there are subtle qualifications and real insights, and there's sophisticated accounts that deserve our attention. But on the face of the word, like what, what we're going to hear, again, commonsensically, when we hear God referred to as impassable, that is not true. And if we're not careful, the face value, as he says, of those words, in this case, impassibility, is going to creep back into the structure and the tone of our discourse. And that, I think, is exactly right. Whatever my disagreements with him, which, again, I've named already, I think he's right about this, that when we talk about God's attributes as unchanging, we talk about God as timeless, when we say that God cannot suffer, if we don't think carefully, like Cyril did, like Gregory did, like Maximus did, like all the theologians who we should still be reading did, we will start to fall back into the assumption that either Jesus is not truly a revelation of God, but an obscuring of God, or Jesus is not in fact God in the way that God is God. That somehow Jesus is, is, is inferior. And that we have to reject. We, and Jens could not be more right about that. Now, in the third section of this essay, he comes to that line, the Ipsi Potter line from Origen's homily, and it's here that he moves to talking about prayer. My title is, of course, a famous line from Origen's homily on Ezekiel 16. The two contexts are important. One is Ezekiel's allegory of foundly Jerusalem, and the other an argument Origen constructs. Origen stipulates pity as the caritatis passio, uh, the, the, the passionate love of God the loving passion of God, a dispositional effect necessarily present in anyone who displays caritas. Like if you, if you really are a person who loves, then you are carried along in some sense by the loving love moves you. This of course, exactly how Jesus is described. He's moved with compassion as the Lord in scripture does to his people. This effect, this effect must be in God and, in, and indeed eternally antecedent in the Father as the ground in God for involvement in the conversation with human life, or the conversation with human life as we know it. He's giving Latin phrases here. An involvement centering in the passion of the Son, in the Paschal mystery. Hence, not only the Son, but also the Father is not impassable, and he has not impassable as one word hyphenated. So, and, and he'll say elsewhere, probably what's best is not to say that God is passable or impassable, but to say that God 
in God's nature is not impassable, one word hyphenated, to try to get at the mystery of what's being said here. In Ezekiel origin story, Ezekiel slash origin story of God and founding Jerusalem, was God passable when he felt pity for the exposed newborn? Jerusalem. With origin, we will have to say yes, since in fact he was affected and so manifested this dispositional property. Was God impassable in his commitment to the wayward foundling? With Luther, we will have to say yes, since at this level of the narrative's hyperbars, and that's one of the metaphors he's using here, the ways in which Western music, drawing on Jeremy Begbie, Western music has a kind of complexity that's not simply linear or cyclical, neither simply linear nor cyclical. And he's, Jens, throughout this essay, is playing on narrative and on music, in particularly Western tonal music, which has a similar narrative shape, as Jeremy Begbie argues, that we see that in God, and since God must be impassable. So at the end of the day, God is passable in some sense, impassable in others, and probably what's best he's going to say is to use that single term. Now, section four. Thus, there is in the imminent life of God, God's life in itself, something like what I have called narrative time, or rather, there is in the imminent life of God that which narrative time is something like. In his imminent narrative time, his imminent narrative time, begging permission to call it that, God, to be sure, transcends any conceivable linear time, as the partisans of divine impassibility rightly insist. And, by the same token, he also transcends any conceivable mere negation of our times, negation on which partisans of divine impassibility seem to insist. In other words, God's impassibility does not negate our experience. Jesus is not some lesser manifestation of God. He's not made to be unlike God in the fact that he suffers. His suffering does not obscure God. It reveals God. That he can suffer is revelatory of God. The question is how and why. Whatever eternal means, it cannot simply mean not temporal. Just like whatever impassibility means, it cannot mean incapable of suffering, incapable of having this capacity to suffer. He goes on to say here, the life of the biblical God cannot be located on any timeline, on any timeline. So God's life is timely. It's timeful, not timeless. Again, there's no negation in God of time. And yet God is not caught in the timeline. God is not caught by the flow of time. He's not trapped by the movement from present to present to present that Augustine talks about in Confessions. He's not cut off by the movements of time. The past is not past to God. That brings Jensen to what we are to say about petitionary prayer. And so I'll read him again. In my view, however, the really difficult question concerns the meaningfulness of petitionary prayer. He's just dealt with the question of theodicy. And again, I disagree with him, and I've written about those disagreements. I think I've made that plain. Now he's moving to what he has to say about petitionary prayer, which is, after all, the kind most recommended and practiced in Scripture. Suppose I pray for someone's recovery. If the Lord foresees from all eternity that my friend will not recover, and if that foreseeing determines the event, and if he thus already knows what he ordains and ordains what he knows, what role does my petition have? It is a question every pastor regularly encounters. And the answers offered are in large part evasions. Prayer undoubtedly, quote-unquote, opens the soul to God. But is the content of the utterance irrelevant to its benefit? Praying is undoubtedly salutary obedience to the Lord's command. But why this particular command in the first place? Petition is undoubtedly, and this has been my own mantra, the appropriate utterance of a creature to the Creator. But if we remain with this formalism, how does that construe the Creator-Creature relation? And here he thinks... We can't follow Thomas. He does think we can follow Thomas in what he said about the Odyssey, but not in what he says about petitionary prayer. I would say we can't follow Thomas in either, or Jensen in the one. So then these are the final paragraphs of of this essay. This, and I'm going to skip ahead a bit because this is there's some technicalities here that you'd have to read the whole essay to understand. How does time work when obedience to our Lord's command, we address God as Father? and tell him how we children think the universe should go. With assurance that our opinion means something material to him as it would to a good parent. We address this father, after all, in unison with the one who by birth has that right, and who is himself one of the eternal trinity, whose joint knowledge and decision determine the event. 
Prayer is involvement in providence. Prayer is involvement in providence. If prayer is anything less, it is simply a pitiful delusion. Perhaps if we were more straightforwardly to consider the biblical necessity of the two sentences just previous to this one, discussion of God's relation to our time and so of his passability, impassibility would make more progress. Right? He is the one whose joint knowledge and decision determine the event. Prayer is involvement in providence. What, what Jensen's claiming here is that the, and this, this is what illuminates Advent, I think, spectacularly, kind of breathtakingly, is that petitionary prayer is commanded because it is the way in which Jesus is heard by his Father. And Jesus wants to be heard by his Father in our voices, that when I am praying, somehow, mysteriously, because God is the event God is, and God is personal in the way God is personal, because God is spirit, my words are taken up as the word that makes the world what it is. Prayer is involvement in providence. So that when something goes wrong, in this case, you know, my father falling ill, and, and my mom telling me about praying over him, certain that he had that he was gone, that he that he that he had died there in her arms. She speaks up. She speaks up. And somehow, and again, I, I don't think there's any kind of straight line to draw. I'm certainly not saying she raised my father from the dead. But I do think that somehow her, the cry of her heart is heard by God as the cry of Jesus' heart. And what we see, what plays out in our life, on, on our timeline, is always and, and more obscuring than revealing of what God is actually doing, even when it goes the way we want it to go. Right, we we walk by faith and not by sight, and that means we must see what can't be seen, and what we do see is an appearance. We we have to recognize, even when things go the way we want them to, and we rejoice in them and we receive them with gratitude. They're still not the fullness of what God is doing. Nothing that happens, good or bad, nothing that happens is simply identical with what God is doing. God, what God is doing is above and beyond even the good we can see. But when the good does happen, and as we are celebrating it, whether or not we can fully appreciate, and of course we can't, all that God is doing in that goodness and to make that goodness good, we we absolutely must trust that what we're doing is taken up by God personally. God takes it personally. God hears us personally. Our words are the words of the word who words the world. And that changes what we imagine Advent to be. The Advent is not waiting on God, waiting on God to do something we can see to prove himself. Advent is not waiting on God to show up and make things right in a way that becomes undeniable to the Herods of the world as well as to the shepherds. Waiting on God is waiting with God, waiting inside God's waiting, which is never passive, but is itself a, a, an activity, a liveliness, a, a surprising faithfulness, and a faithful surprisingness that is altering creation, in a sense, from its deepest core out. Right? It, it is God being God already, doing good we, that's beyond what we can ask or think. When when Jesus says, for God, all things are possible, we have to take him at his word. For God, all things are possible. Right here, right now. When scripture says that he withholds no good thing from those who love him, we have to take that seriously. He's not withholding good from us. He's not letting evil things happen and holding some good things back from us. He is giving it to us, but he's giving it to us in the dynamic, lively way that's neither linear nor cyclical, that neither happens in straight lines or crooked ones, but happens in ways that are only possible for the God who is the event he is. God happens to us as only God can happen to us. But that happening includes us living our lives, us speaking up in the conversation. And and this is what I love about Jensen's work. With all my disagreements with him, with all that I think he gets wrong, with all the with, with all of the density of the arguments, the the sometimes Kind of in, in insulting brevity, which you he'll say something as if it should be obvious to everyone. The the ways in which I disagree with his reading of the history. What I love, what I love, is that the God he's speaking of is a God whose life is 
recognizable as the life of this Jesus I love, this Jesus that I know loves me and loves you. And that, I think, makes Advent a season of longing, of desperate longing, but not a time of desperation. There's, there's intensity to the desire, but that desire is itself already a grace. Mm-hmm.